Very pleased this afternoon to be joined on this edition of the Warning Podcast by Rabbi Tina Greinberg, who leads the congregation Doshe Novam in Toronto, Canada. Welcome, Rabbi Tina. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to have you with us. Hard times now, right? Hard times, but um, I'm glad to, to I'm glad to be here and to speak with you. There is an anniversary today that is of note in the United States, December nineteenth, and it marks the day where one week into service in Belgium as part of the advancing United States Army, 26-year-old Master Sergeant Roderick Edmonds of Knoxville, Tennessee, was taken prisoner in the German counteroffensive that history remembers as the Battle of the Bulge. And as it came to be, Master Sergeant Ed Madmans, age 26, found himself on January 27th, uh, which is coincidentally another important date, uh, which I'll mention in a second, but Master Sergeant Edmonds on the day that Red Army forces liberated Auschwitz uh, found himself standing in front of almost 1,300 Americans as the senior American soldier in Stalag 9B. There were no officers, no lieutenants, captains, majors, just the 26-year-old master sergeant. Uh, the Nazi commandant came out and demanded that the Jews be identified and separated from the rest of the American soldiers. Uh, master Sergeant Edmonds said nothing uh, to anybody, did not consult, and he said, we won't do that. Uh, we are all Jews here. And uh, as the Nazi commander withdrew his sidearm and held it to Master Sergeant Edmonds' heads um, and threatened to pull the trigger, uh, the Master Sergeant's counteroffer at age 26 was, you could kill all of us. Uh, we are Americans. Um, we don't do that. We're all Jews. And that um, you uh, will be a war criminal and will be hunted to the ends of the earth as we win this war, which was by then, uh, which was by then evident. And he came home uh, and never told anybody uh, about this story. He had three marriages. His son was a Baptist minister and his last wife handed these wartime diaries, and the son uh, found the name, found the story, and was reading a New York Times piece, apparently, uh, about a real estate transaction involving former President Nixon. And in that story, by happenstance, was an element of this tale by the lawyer who represented Richard Nixon, who was one of the 300 Jews there that day that was saved. And he was declared years after his death uh, righteous amongst the nations and the first American servicemen to be to be so declared. But his capture 
was 80 years ago today um, in that battle, uh, Adolf Hitler's last gasp in Europe in a war that killed upwards of 100 million people and uh, led to the genocide of, of the Jews was underway on December 16th on the same day that a former American president and the leading Republican candidate for president in, in the United States talked about um, immigrants poisoning uh, the blood of our country, which is absolutely Hitlerian Nazi language. Uh, you are an immigrant to Canada. You are a rabbi. You are a Jew. And I heard you deliver a sermon uh, over Yom Kippur, I believe, that that I think was one of the most brilliant expositions I've ever heard anybody deliver on the subject of anti-Semitism. So I wanted to have you here today to talk about that subject and um, open it up by asking about that incident from 80 years ago where... Um, Going to the sermon that I heard, uh, anti-Semitism that you grew up with uh, in in Europe, in the East of uh, Europe, uh, is very different. But the anti-Semitism, as I understood your sermon, troublingly seems to be enduring. So, uh, first of all, Tim, thank you. Um, I am very privileged to serve uh, congregation Darhei Noam, and um, I, um, it was, it, you know, it, I was honored to have uh, you there, and then, you know, after that, de developed this connection. I didn't want to write that sermon. Uh, I didn't want to write it. And usually when I struggle with sermons um, and trying to choose uh, a topic to speak on, they're all often done several uh, uh, conflicting ideas that uh, absolutely fight for my attention. But here there was no choice, and this is before October 7th. I felt compelled to write, and I'm not sure what was guiding, or maybe I do, what was guiding my, my hand was a difficult sermon to research, and more so actually to be able to say it out loud, that I began to re-experience the trauma of of, my, of growing up. So, uh, you know, working in my, in a capacity as, um, as a rabbi, I go to the hospitals very often and I speak both to patients and doctors. And one thing began to show up in the last, uh, over a decade is that there is not one type of cancer. There are millions of type of cancers out there that, and maybe I'm exaggerating, I'm not a, a physician, but in other words, there are, um, many anti-Semitisms as many as their anti-Semites. So not one anti-Semitism is, is like any other anti-Semitism because people come to it from some at often very personal uh, ideations and, or group ideas, and then they adapt to themselves. So the uh, anti-Semitism of, of, of Soviet Ukraine, uh, maybe to some degree with different than anti-Semitism I encountered in the United States. But let me just say that 
story of a, of a, of a sergeant standing up, a 26-year-old young man, to be able to, to have these inspiring words is uh, awestruck. And that's what we found in 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 the United States. I actually came to the United States first in 1979. I was a um, 16-year-old girl. I finished, uh, had to finish high school, then went to graduate school, and uh, then subsequently ended up in, in Canada and went to seminary in New York. But um, it was, I remember the first years in the United States, and I thought to myself, my goodness, there there is a world that's free of this. Not only that, but I met uh, American Christians who were so passionate about Bible and about their Jewish roots, meaning from Christianity, that Christianity uh, burst from, that actually church in every corner in Indiana was extremely friendly site for me. I found friends there. So my experience of new world was very, very uh, positive and free of, 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 of this uh, a feeling of oppression. So let me just say, on account of the Soviet anti-Semitism, you know, anytime society what is oppressed, as we know, there will be an ugly underground of infection that will be rising up from the masses. And so Ukrainians were oppressed as well, and intellectuals were oppressed as well. And God forbid, if you are a different uh, sexual orientation, there were plenty of those who would have turned you in and you can would be... Uh, deemed as a pervert. Um, the the pain of anti-Semitism we experienced was not only that the, the, at times it was so difficult, you didn't understand what was it about, meaning why would you not be liked? I mean, I was a kid, I was a girl. Uh, what could I possibly have done? But the fact that uh, we had no Jewish education, so I had no Jewish pride, I had no Jewish knowledge. There was nothing to combat to be able to look at this dark force and feel uh, that I have the spiritual ammunition to be able to counteract, to be able to respond to. It turns you on the inside, on the inside, and it turns into shame. So you have an identity of a Jew, but you did not have the education and the privilege of learning because it was forbidden. So in the United States, you know, that was... Uh, initial years of prosperity, but then you will run into uh, <laughs> an issue as well because it does exist uh, among people. But that anti-Semitism was somewhat different, you know, in its uh, in its shape. And one thing that was a big surprise, and I mentioned that uh, in a sermon in a story, is that it came with a smile that I was not ready. <laughs> anti-Semitism that came with kind of that political correctness, I did not see. But when you turn on the social media, that anti-Semitism, that cancer actually echoes very much the the terrible reality of the Soviet Ukraine that we, uh, you know, we came from. So there's some very similarities to the, I call it that cancer, and it's in every every organism. In other words, when organism is 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 troubled, it will show up, uh, and. What can I say in terms of the treatment and education and uh, and counteract? In uh, I'm blissful to say that in my interface work with churches and even mosques, and and in 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 the larger sense, I found so many friends who wanted to stand to stand by us, uh, both in against anti-Semitism or any phobias for that matter, because it's never one. You never hate one. 
<laughs> Usually it's like you're quite egalitarian. <laughs> in uh, one in in terms of its dislikes of, of 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 a certain minority, and then it sort of mushrooms. But um, but as 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 painful as some of this is, I also want to say that there is incredible connections and uh, the number of phone calls that came after October October seventh uh, to me from my uh, from my non-Jewish friends, as well as troubling uh, hours and hours in my study with uh, my congregants who say the world, my colleagues, my art community, my liberal circles has turned away its face. So I'm, I know I'm beyond the questions you're ready to, you prepared, so I'm going to pull back. But no. bottom line, that sermon was hard to conceptualize and to write, and I felt I had no choice. It was the king. Let me, let me, let me come back to two things that you said before we push forward into the world that exists post-October 7th. So your family survived. Um, it survived the pogroms. It survived the Nazis. It survived the Second World War. You survived. Yes. How many Jews were there in Ukraine before 1939? Mm, it's, an ex it's an excellent uh, question. So I, Ukraine, I cannot answer you, but in order for Hitler to uh, kill 3 million of Polish Jews, you have to have over 3 million. So right. I, I don't have, I just, you know, I don't have, I wasn't prepared to delve into statistics. I'm happy to send it to you uh, later on. Uh, so with the pale of settlement, which is Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, and some Russia. Soviet Union or uh, greater Russian empire, I'm sorry, I know we're also speaking after yeah. the war with U Russia, between Russia and Ukraine developed, so all of it sounds, how should I say, infected, but nevertheless, it was a great Tsarist empire. There was a huge number of population of Jews who end up living in that eastern part of Europe because the conditions for many years were also favorable. One thing I don't want to paint is that Jewish history has been nothing but a, a plethora of all and oi Judaism. It's like, it was always awful. We had we had years of prosperity, right? And, and also years where in the same time there was a prosperity and horrible things. So, so it was Polish nobility, actually, that asked Jews to come from Germany and settle and develop trade in along the Rhine River and then take us into Eastern Europe. This trade was developed so Poland can be developed. One of the famous um, uh, kings of Poland was Kazimir, and uh, there is a section in Krakow where I worked with Ukrainian refugees in the past two years. Jews and non-Jews, majority non-Jews who fled war with Ukraine, they they settled along the, the 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 rivers and developed trade and developed merchandry, which helped Poland to to blossom in terms of its uh, it or develop Poland in terms of its um, uh, you know in terms of its economic uh, system. So Jews settled, and then of course with the Soviet Union they inherited the Great Mother Russia inherited. Uh, quite a number of Jews. And by when Soviet Union was established and over sudden the limitation and quotas of Jews entering universities uh, was taken off because we were limited. By the way, so was in Canada. 
<laughs> you could not go to medical school. They're like there were quotas uh, that were very serious. They didn't just wasn't if not I think nineteen fifties uh, uh, when I think if I'm correct quotas were lifted. But and I have to check that date. So forgive me that that year. But when it was lifted, then the Jews rushed to universities because they wanted to learn. So it wasn't only yeshiva learning, upstairs, uh, learning religious concept. It was also cultural uh, uh, in general of, of, of civil, uh, of, to enter civil society. And before that as well, they, they were. But so my family survived. And the reason we survived World War II is because both my mother's family and my father's family, my mother's from Kiev fled east, and my father was uh, relocated with his mother uh, over the uh, Volga River. And because of the Stalingrad, a horrific battle that turned the tide of Eastern Front of, uh, of a war, um, it was the bloodiest of battles where, you know, the number of young men perished uh, is unspeakable. Uh, my father survived, and then my parents met as, as sweethearts in a dorm because he was destroyed. Nazis destroyed going in. In the meantime, murdering 30,000 Jews in three days. I have a great aunt who died in that in that massacre. And then as the key was liberated, the key was again destroyed because they were pushing Nazis back, uh, uh, you know, through Europe. And so my parents returned and they met uh, and they fell in love as children. So great love story. But so families survived because my grandfather, one grandfather was drafted into the Soviet army, served as an officer, came back wounded and died within a few weeks after victory was proclaimed. But he could see his boys. My father. One of the things that you said is you talked about these periods of European history. So there, there are through the centuries. Yes. There's a Jewish identity that is continuous, contiguous in Europe, in these countries. But by the time you are growing up, mm -hmm. you don't have much of a Jewish identity. And I wanted to ask you about that because what, what that says to me, um, Ronald Reagan used to talk about this um, almost in a way that I received as a kid as a cliche or a platitude, but it was this notion that freedom is only ever one generation away from being extinguished. And I, I think a deeper reading of American history is that if you look at some of the indigenous tribes, the loss of culture, is that one of the great enduring crimes of the Nazis and in the immediate aftermath and of the Soviets was the extinguishment of a 5,000-year-old culture. And it is possible, uh, even within just a generation... You can destroy it. ...to be able to destroy it and to do it. It is that fragile... And it probably speaks because of that fragility um, to the incessancy of the aspiration to finish the job, right? To 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 wipe out and and to destroy because there's been a there's been a perpetuity mm -hmm. to the hate to the stigmatization. There has always been a there has always been an impulse. Um, 
to get the Jews throughout 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 history. And I, and I just wonder, you know, thinking about the fragility of that. And you told this story in your sermon about the young man who goes off to college wearing a symbol, a, a necklace of his Jewish identity. Right. Huge bag and David. I've never seen it. And then I've never seen it. I think it was this big. And then within a short period of time, you know, that first symbol of identity extinguished and really about the commitment necessary to the sustainment of of identity, of culture, and ultimately nationality before we before we get into October seventh. Right. So let me let me just uh, you know the there is an excellent article that's been circling by a small Morsons, uh, who is uh, I think teaches for Northwestern, uh, very talented uh, writer, and uh, he is um, a PhD, he he's a professor of Slavic literature, and his specialty is in Dostoevsky, special. And of course, you know, no one writes about suffering better than nineteenth-century Russian uh, writers. And um, uh, he brings the case of Dostoevsky and says that how come men who can who can talk about suffering with such sensitivity, with such an incredible intellectual, be so anti-Semitic? What is it that feeds the brilliant mind and soul in all other ways, but not to see suffering in its fullness? And he develops and tries to understand to the point that he says, well. He quotes uh, uh, one of the, I think, uh, Russian literary critics, but one of them, he says, well, he says, he wrote, if the whole world hates Jews, there must be a reason. There must be a reason that through our generation, there was something, something about these people that's so, uh, that's so dislikable. So he gives the, uh, Morse, uh, Dr. Morrison gives a very interesting example of particular anti-Semitism that Dostoevsky doesn't want to own, being an intellectual. So for him, it's a philosophy. He says he's not anti-Semitic, anti but the fact is that he blames Disraeli, right? At, at that time, the right-hand man uh, in, uh, you know, in, in, in English uh, parliament, he blames him uh, for um, capitalism becoming more and more so pronounced that he hates all the Jews for bringing capitalism to the world and destroying the souls as a result of that, that actually religious aspirations that should be the uh, the masses. And his anti-Semitism, which he doesn't want to own, he says, I don't hate Jews, but he does it in a philosophical way. And that will take us to October 7th because anti-Semitism will morph into different forms. So if Dostoevsky great, Dostoevsky's idea is it about against uh, Jewish industrialism or, or, or uh, bankers and so forth, um, the next generation will find it in a different place. So as much as I would like to say that, that when it comes to, if you have some anti-Israel rhetoric based on the fact that you criticize lack of democracy in Israel, I don't understand how that relates to bombing or bringing guns in a Jewish day school in diaspora here in Canada, just 10 minutes away from my house. So you hide your, your sensibility behind a different philosophy. But the fact is, you put it, it does exist and it changes form in different, in different generations. And it attacks, this cancer attacks vulnerable souls. 
souls that do not spend and mind enough time in critical thinking. I, they choose isolation by looking, and boy, now, my goodness, I'm speaking to you from my lovely little pink color iPad. Boy, it knows what to feed me. If I want a pill box yet, if I need a, a, a exercise particular for women over 50, boy, it knows me better than I know myself. And you have these vulnerable souls who are fed and fed and fed with the material that they cannot both often, uh, often, they to um, uh, work through, to question, to read greater, to hear other people. So anti-Semitism at times, it was driven by the church. How come the mother tradition, the Judaism rejected Christianity and Christian roots? How dare you? It's a hate of a parent. It's a, it's a dislike that religion Christianity was rejected. For Spanish, for Spanish Inquisition, my goodness, the amount of land that was confiscated and wealth from the people who were accused antichrist or burnt at the stake. Unbelievable. That's materialistically driven. So you have, it's not about the people. It's about often what the people, meaning it's not about the Jews. It's about what the system that produces this poison, what is it after? And very often it will incorporate lost individuals. Crusades picked up along with its pillage, not the finest of Europe, but everyone couldn't read, couldn't write, when the, when the pitchfork was going to liberate uh, Jerusalem from infidels and on the way do a bit of looting and killing. Well, there were plenty of little villages along the way. Indiscriminatory uh, murder. Right. So you have it. You have this in uh, you can have, for example, interaction in an office where your Jewish boss was not really terribly kind to you. And for all of a sudden, you will walk out hating every Jew that you meet. Jewish person didn't do the right thing. I want all the Jews to do the right thing to be most generous, most honest, most the sweetest, open, caring, only all the best. That's why I went into Rabinet is. How do you take this extraordinary tradition that was divided, that was absolutely uh, deprived to me, and give it over with love and affection and and spirit for good? Let me ask you a question and apply your very formidable intellect towards it. How, how do you process the three presidents, two former, two presidents now, one former president, University of Pennsylvania president, since resigned, some of the leading global higher education institutions in the world, world famous everywhere, MIT, University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, University that uh, that uh, that the question um, about anti-Semitism is answered as it is within a human lifetime. Yes, of the Holocaust, right. which central lesson is expressed as a combination of never again and never forget. How can it be 
that 30 years after Schindler's List is released Uh in the culture, Uh that the culture, at least in an elite academic sense, has moved from point A to point B without much conversation about any of the space that exists underneath point A to point B. I, I think it's incredible. So, and and let just I'd love to hear you, you meditate on that. Oh, so let me see. If, and forgive me, at times I don't, I mean, I don't know if it's because it's, it's a rabbinic thing, but at times it, or myself in particular, do not stay very focused, but eventually hopefully get to, sure. uh, to, what, to where we would be uh, heading. Uh, I think, first of all, the idea of freedom of speech, I do not believe uh, exists in its full sense. We're actually not free to say what we think. Sometimes it's a good idea, and sometimes it's not a good idea. What I, when I lost, listened to the three women speaking, I was horrified for a couple, a couple of issues. First of all, they were my fellow women, uh, meaning that you should know what oppression is like. And by the way, this is not because my entire feminine experience and feminist experience were in the presence of oppressive uh, system or oppressive men. No. But as a female who worked and walled and, 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 and been part, the sensitivity was, a lack of sensitivity was stunning. Forgive me if I expect at this moment from a, from a, from a lover of the world, from another mother, such distance of, of sensitivity. So first of all, you might have to edit this, this piece out. So I'm continuing speaking. What I was upset, and I would expect the same from men as well. But what the second thing I was I was stunned by, they looked scared to me. And I look for those signs as a, as a, a both as a, as a rabbi and as a, as a therapist. With these three women looked frightened. They were frightened to speak what they really thought. And the idea of intellectual freedom in university is very much under attack. And I don't know if it'll ever fully exist. Maybe there was a little Renaissance period in between. They were looked frightened of what will be the consequence if they really say what they think, because I don't believe they have done so. They looked behind their response, invisible to us. They were members of the board, they were donors, there were all they were groups of students and student body to which they were answering. I did not feel we received a truly in-depth what they thought of, of, of reality. They were what you call in the Jewish kitchen parv. Parv means neither meat, neither neither milk. It is usually belongs to vegetables. And when and they were in front of the woman who was spectacular interviewer. Of, of them and an examiner, she was Stepanik, I think her last name, who was Congresswoman, was unbelievably clear and 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 on target. So first of all, this is what I thought. This is what I saw. The other thing is the power in the and the, uh, our feeling that overlooming subject of the Holocaust. Uh, Irvin Cutler, who is an who is was uh, um, you know uh, MP in uh, I think I'm. 
saying it correctly, for uh, Liberal Party here in Canada, and who is also was charged with anti uh, to deal with the anti-Semitism, whose regular regular uh, threats of uh, death threats that are posed against him. But he at the at the conference on anti-Semitism, which was planned. And nobody expected after October 7th, it was planned way before, but it just happened to be after October 7th in Ottawa. He said, remember, this is still, this not, this is 2023, 1943. And it's caught up. It was like, you're right. We can't be, we know we have a lot more going for us than we did in, in 1943. We have democracy on our side. We are vocal, we speak, and so forth, so on. For a while, we repeated this. This is 2023. This is not 1943. Let me tell you what's the problem with it. So I compare my Jewish reality compared to a gas chamber. As long as they're not going to put me in the chamber, in the gas chamber, everything else is not okay. Or is it okay? Do you see like this this specter of, of between living a good life of 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 a free person in the world, either being of, of of various faith communities in general, of being a Jew, uh, being a vibrant Jew, being outspoken Jew, the next step, as long as it's not Auschwitz, then it's okay. Well, there are plenty of things that's not Auschwitz, that's not okay. The fact that my son has to be concerned of what's happening on campus is not okay. And it's not Auschwitz. And what we're hoping is that a simple human being burdened with the work, maybe fired, maybe lonely, sitting in front of this computer, will make a sophisticated leap that will say, well, if I continue reading these horrible articles about Jewish people, I might end up like a Nazi, and then I can actually destroy and kill. That's a very, very sophisticated journey you, you try to take individual on, who's frankly are... I don't want to see people, um, I want to see them in the best possible light and hope for their for their openness and rehabilitation, if I may say. But what we're asking for people to do with these terrible minds is make a very, very huge leap that where their prejudice can take them. And I don't believe majority people can. And then there are some individuals that will take, as in my son's school, and what through his high school, he's now in university, walked through his high school, and uh, next thing you know, there is the police, there is a bomb threat, and all the kids evacuated three times. Three times. So no, it's not 1943, but I have to tell you, the bar is pretty low. I think it's really interesting um, to hear you talk about that and make that comparison. And so I think about this completely differently, um, and and I'll I'll lay it out from for you um, because I I think about it not as somebody who is even converting to Judaism, but just as somebody who's fifty three, who's reached middle age and has a and has a perspective on time, um, and is a amateur student of history, nineteen forty three. Uh, is a year after the Wannsee conference where the murder of the Jews is officially planned and really what we recall of the Holocaust such as it was 
the mechanized, industrialized murder through the gas chambers, the incineration, the confiscation of goods, properties, Auschwitz, all of this killing takes place between 1942 and January, spring of 1945, including up through the very, very last minutes uh, that the Nazi Reich existed. They were they were killing Jews to the to the very last second, in, including after Hitler killed himself. And so if you think about 1943 in that moment, how, how did you get to 1943? And that that took 20 years. That, that took from 1923, from Adolf Hitler's putsch, and, and you can divide that 20 years. You can divide it in half. It took 10, 10 years from Hitler's putsch to taking power, and it, and it took 10 years to 1943. It took six years to start the war. It took two years to strip Jews of their, of their rights. And it, it took five years to get to the largest state pogrom in history. And in 1940, in the United States, Charles Lindbergh came really within organizing one vote away the cancellation of the American military draft, which would have made an invasion across the channel impossible before, say, 1946, which meant that the Holocaust, such as it was, would have gone on for much, much longer. Right. And and the question in 2023 isn't about 1943. It's about where are we in the trajectory and in the of an unfinished story. The, the one thing I know historically to be true is that when we talked about the history, we've talked about the 16th century was deadlier than the 15th, the 17th more than the 16th, the 18th more than the 17th, the 19th more than the 18th, the 20th, the deadliest of all. And we come to the middle of the century with an existential moral proposition mankind can now extinct itself with weapons that are within them the power of the gods contained within them the power of the proverbial gods war hasn't stopped but the acceleration of disaster has slowed until the end of the lifespans of the people who survived the events and the political hope of the preeminent leader uh, for the good, for freedom in that moment, Franklin Roosevelt, in a discussion with the Canadian prime minister, it goes on late at night. And he says to Prime Minister King that his aspiration is not that the world to come, this American-led freedom led international order will endure forever. He just wants it to last for as long as everybody is alive on the day the war is is won. And the youngest of those people are about 80 years old. And we have this wave of amnesia 
sweeping at a time where we know how that story ended. But no, we no, have no right. idea where this story is going. Going. My son was, was fast, you know, he's a the eighteen year old young man who said, I'm much less concerned about Israel and much more concerned about Jews in um you know, in diaspora, I think the tide actually turned. If the diaspora of a Jewish community was concerned uh, about, you know, how Israel will fare, actually, says I think it's the other way of how we're going to do. Uh, look, uh, one of the uh, Jewish um, concepts is that you're not allowed to despair, even if it feels like it's dark. Um, so I, um, I was in the car with him, and I said. Um, uh, and we speak Russian. I grew up in Kiev, and the language of love is Russian for me. Even, um, even so, you know, my, my, you know, what's happening in Ukraine and with Russia is also complicated and heart wrenching. Um, to but uh, so we sp I speak Russian to him often enough, and I said, you know, I never thought that when I chased train out of Ukraine, and that's exactly what my sister and I did, and I. I talk about it in the book where, you know, we were last to get to get off the platform and the train began to move and two young women, myself and my sister, were left. My parents were in the in the cart itself trying to help elderly and pulling people in. Uh, but all departures like this are, um, are filled with chaos. Uh, I said, when I chased that train, I never thought that you... Um, would ever have to face anti-Semitism. Your grandfather's and our goal was to create the world without it for you. But that's not the case. That's not the case. Uh, so what do I see in my work and in my son is actually this crisis awakens Jewish identity. There are a number of responses. You know, when, when things are hard for the Jews, um, the laws around Hanukkah, and that is customs and, you know, traditions, and we just finished this extraordinary festival of lights, you're supposed to announce miracle and you put your Hanukkiah, your menorah, right at the window or outside in Israel. They go into a box outside on the streets. You see these beautiful boxes with lit menorahs. And when things are really hard for the Jews, um, you put your Hanukkiah, you light it on the table inside the house. So... At times in our history, we have to light it in the house, and at times we light it right there at the window. So some Jews chose to go on the inside, and others have been absolutely inspired to go. And I have been asked to do more conversions, and more young Jewish people have been calling and asking about, give me traditions to live by than I have ever had in 20 years, 25 years of serving Jewish community. So actually, where it's going from, I want to ex to examine this from oi to joy, and that, that we will face this. And I am both frightened and determined that if we give education to our children and our people to live this beautiful Jewish righteous life, work with very deeply with interface, uh, an interface dialogue, which I do regularly with my Christian colleagues and friends, as well as people of other faith, and vigil about democracy. 
we stand a chance. We stand a chance. And overall, the world is better uh, and than it used to be. We actually, depending on numbers, used to pillage each other a lot better with greater success. We are more civilized as well as more sophisticated to kill. Absolutely. But um, I, I, I see the light even when there's darkness around me. And to see people seeking out their Jewish identity and roots and say, Yilachim, to life. And I can be there from that place of, uh, of shame and of lack of education as a Jew who fled that terrible system. Uh, Judaism in the Soviet Union was erased, but it was left in your passport to know you're a Jew. By the time it got to me, there was my grandmother's Yiddish whispers and uh, little stories here and there. But Judaism in 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 the North America and, and in education that we try to impart has the life-giving and life-surviving skills for the future. And I will not stop to share that education. And so your concern is absolutely history can present that trajectory is scary. Where we are in this trajectory, you can say 1938, maybe, and then it doesn't take long. I don't believe this will unfold as such, but when I speak to Holocaust survivors, I cry with them. And one thing I want to say, I want to, today's my father's yurt site, you know, he died four years ago. You couldn't have found more elegant men. Uh, more charming, more in love with his two, more in love with his wife and his two girls. Uh, and um, he served in the Soviet army. His father served for entire years of the war, uh, along with Ukrainians, along with Uzbekis, and along with Georgians to fight a horrible, horrible war with of Hitler. I'm glad my father isn't seeing what he's has not he died before the war in Ukraine unfolded. I wish him to live to 120, but I have to tell you, I'm glad he didn't see this. Um, and to see Holocaust survivors and he, what he would have seen on October on October 7th would have destroyed my parents. To see Holocaust survivors reliving this is absolutely um, devastating. So what do we do? We bring them to hear our children sing in Hebrew. What do we do? We make phone calls to Israel and hear Israelis speak about spirit and future and desire for peace. What do we do every Saturday morning, 864 Shepherd, where you were there for uh, high holidays? We bring people in the sanctuary and we sing and we dance and we educate. So no, no, we won't let it happen. No. Let me, Am I frightened? Let me ask you a a final question, and that's to what do you say to young people who are watching the terrible consequence of October 7th unfold. Right. Um, without any historical context, mm -hmm. 
in complete ignorance about the cost of war, the horror of war, the intellectual construct of of just war. Yes, right. The consequences of violations of international law being committed by Hamas in terms of embedding themselves with civilian population, including militarizing hospital facilities, uh, elder care facilities, child care facilities, um, so on, so on and so forth. But, but no matter, um, the, the casualties are high. Yes, uh, absolutely. You feel for civilians. Absolutely. lost a, a Jewish baby's life. And its loss in in the eyes of God is no greater or less a loss than a Arab baby or Muslim baby or yes. Christian baby. That all are equally a, a tragedy, tragedy and an affront. But that when an event like this happens, when an evil manifests itself, yes, yes, that the evil must be confronted and that that confrontation will will mean violence and death and destruction at an epic scale that cannot be averted but can be the beginning of an era of peace on the other side right. if people so choose it but how how do you explain this to a to a 18 year old to a to a 20 year old that is reacting on their social media feeds uh emotionally to the of images of war you know so we've been quite um quite privileged to live in a time where, you know, the war is not on the ground in Canada or in the United States. We have, um, it's elsewhere, right? You know, it's kind of overseas, right? But these images are brought close to you. What is amazing is that how, that war is awful anywhere, including Rwanda, including in Syria, including in Afghanistan. So Middle East is, um, is affected by, and Gaza is affected by horrific war, but this is not the only place where our justice needs to be stirred and spilled. That's number one. It's impossible to explain so much in such a short period of time. First of all, the attention of teenage young people is very short. I see it when I try to have a conversation and get to a third sentence. And I don't know if you have teenage children, but you they ran out like it's amazing. It's, uh, whoo, uh, you're onto something else. Almost like a toddler, forgive me. I don't mean to infantilize them. But there is a bit of, right, you, well, we, so there was one. Uh, I think at the most I can do, I can't control media. And very often it's profoundly unfriendly and frankly, lack of nuance, lack of nuance to compare to compare the death of hostages that were only and uh, and what happened, you know, in in those in the southern Israel, to compare to 
uh, to make the equivalence uh, uh, so easily without distinguish. What does that mean to come into someone else's home? What does that mean, the battleground? Yes, life is life. However, there 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 is a nuance and difference. You cannot do it on the fly. And the little social feeds they receive, the young people receive, are actually uh, support their inability to discipline, to read, to digest, and to have a critical thought. That takes effort. That take, And that was the beginning of my conversation when I thought, really? You have to really think through something. Um, they are... They want quick answers, and I see incredible isolation in young people. On one hand, I can, uh, with my phone, to be all over the world. Anytime I can do anything, it means I can do nothing. Because everything is not is not anything. So, so the depth of analysis is really missing. Plus, the the the, the media content that just hardly hardly is uh, 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 is supported. So, so I would say to those who are able to pay attention, you have series of dialogues without punishment or harsh judgment, but desire to say, well, tell me, why do you feel and think like this? And would you be open to me challenging or another opinion? So I don't see this on a larger scale. I see this on one-to-one. And we've done so also at the at Darche Noam. We are in polarization of, uh, are you, and Darhenoam is not a place of polarization. It's a very tolerant, loving uh, uh, community. But there is a room for grief. I mean, what happened on, 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 on October 7th, the f- beyond b- despicable bar- bar- barbarism. I also feel for... Gaza civilian who is mourning her child and or her uh, her beloved mother or anyone else who is on the rubble. So I ha- to have room to love with both with both parts of your heart is uh, is is possible. It's possible to be belonging to a group and seeing the group as central element of your of your of your manifestation of life in this world as part of it and see humanity. But that's what we need to teach. That's what we need to teach. Is it easy? The answer is absolutely not. Did we lose that next generation? I refuse to think that we have. Is it been difficult for all of us? I my I, my study turned into a place of tears for people who are grieving, grieving what has taken place and grieving their place in the world. We are in the threshold, but I feel that um, we hold hands, and even if it's dark at times, doesn't mean light. Light doesn't shine. What a perfect place to leave it. Leave it there with Rabbi Tina. Thank you so much for your time, your words of wisdom. Thank you for watching. Make sure you subscribe to our channel so you never miss a video. Also, for more content just like this, please consider joining our Warning Premium community. You can find out more in the description below.